right, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Emily. Like I said, happy Father's Day. How are we doing this morning? Yeah. Good. Uh, lots of fatherly observations I've made in the past few weeks, mostly through movies. So walk with me. Guardians of the Galaxy 3, top notch. I was told that I would cry through almost the entire movie. I did not, but I cried towards the end. And Drax is told, you were never meant to be a destroyer. You were meant to be a dad. I won't spoil it all. But it's like, I'm watching Creed 2. Creed's fighting the Russian's kid. You know what happened the first time. If you don't, shame on you. <laughs> but the Russian's losing. And his mom walks out embarrassed, full of shame. And his dad walks over and stops the fight for him. Says it's okay. As a way to like reconcile decades worth of hating that Russian guy. And now it's like, he did what a dad should do. Stop the pain for his son and tell him it's okay, even if you're failing. And then I'm reading, a, I go on the beach vacation. That's where I was last week. And I usually go to the library and just pick out a random biography. I picked out Paul Newman. If you don't know him, it means you're less than 60 years old. He's an actor. He sells some grape juice. He's like a pretty important guy. He's passed away now. But I'm reading his biography, not a Christian guy. But he basically, he makes this little comment in there. I never had a male mentor in my life ever, like at any point. Somebody that I could look up to and say, that's who I'm trying to become, or that's the man shaping me. I was like, man, that's devastating. I meet with, you know, I meet with different people in the church. I meet with a younger guy, and I said, hey, who in your life saw you? Like your mom, your dad? He's like, no. A teacher or two. Like a job, the job of a father is to see and to go towards his kids, whether that's biological or adopted or foster or a spiritual father, you see somebody and you go towards them. We all have a longing for a father to go towards us, just so you know. And the only spot you're going to find that imperfection is here, not in this church or in this building or with this group of people necessarily, but any group of people who says this is how God has communicated to us and through his perfect son, and by his Holy Spirit. So that father thing that all of us have, this is where we all come to get it in perfection. But here's the other thing. We, some of us are called to be fathers for others. Like I said, in a variety of ways. And that's a high calling. And it's the most difficult, painful, challenging, emotionally draining thing you will ever step into. And we've got dads in here with kids who were like, we just had a baby born on Saturday or Friday 
from the church. Clayton, who runs our slides, Brooke, who works in kids' ministry, they had their first kid, and Clayton is now a dad, and he's stepping into, he's, this is what happens. First week, you call me like, dude, it's way easier. Than, I don't know what everyone's complaining about. <laughs> I'm like, just, you know, scientifically, that baby's not actually awake yet. Just you call me in two weeks, in three weeks, in 13 years, and then let's talk about this easy little thing called parenting, young man. But it's worth it. Galatians says this, do not weary in doing good. How much more true is that of fathering, parenting? So for you dads, I just want to pray that for you. Do not weary in doing good. And maybe where there's wrongs you've done, you step into those and fix those by doing good in confession and repentance. So let's pray for the dads, me included. God, nothing in my life has given me more joy, purpose, sense of closeness to you and awareness of what you're like than parenting. And nothing in my life has exposed me more, challenged me more, grieved me more than being a parent. So God, help us to not weary in doing good. Help us to be a church that always lifts up fatherhood. First and foremost, your fatherhood as our heavenly father. Secondarily, to the earthly call of being a father, a spiritual father, a biological father, an adopted father to people who are looking for a father. Let us not weary in doing good. God, give us the strength by your spirit to do that, which none of us can do alone. We love you. Thank you for being our father who is perfect with not a blemish to spot. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, now... I was told that on Mother's Day, there's usually a sweetsy sermon about how great moms are, and then on Father's Day, it's like a challenging thing, and I'm like, I don't think that's true, and the passage today is pretty challenging, so I think that's just how God wants it to be done. Uh, the, the sermon today is basically based around a question. I was reading this book the other day, and it had this comment, children on average ask 240 questions a day. Adults on average ask 30 questions a day, and I told my wife that, and she just burst into tears. That's why my life is so draining, because 240 times 4 is a lot. It's just shy of 1,000 questions a day. <laughs> but it also means this. As you grow up, the curiosity in you starts to fade. Your ability to stop and see something and ask questions about it starts to fade away. What we're asking today is one of the most important questions any human will ever ask. It's how do I know that I am a Christian. Not how do I become a Christian. How do I know, sitting in this room right now, with this life journey up to this point, know that I am a Christian? That's the question on the mind of the Apostle John. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to have three unhelpful responses to that question for you. Not necessarily from the text, but sort of background. And I'm going to have two uh, helpful questions to this. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Picture your grandson comes to you. He's 17, struggling in life. Grandpa, how do I know I'm a Christian? I'm sure you have a spouse who's kind of self-doubtful and never really like sure of himself or herself. They come to you, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Or you, sitting alone with your thoughts, ask the question, how do I know that I know that I know I'm a Christian? Everybody has to wrestle with this question. And there's some very unhelpful ways to wrestle with it. And there's a few helpful ones that the Apostle John gives us. That's what we're doing. As I walk through this with people from our church just kind of trying to tackle this text together, uh, Xavier actually had an interesting point. He calls the Apostle John here the man bringing direct kindness. Meaning like 
there's some of you that are just kind and always be kind. But direct, like, I'm not going to beat around the bush, but I'm going to be kind in doing it. That's what the Apostle John does here. So here's the goal of this sermon based off the text and what I've prayed through with the Spirit. Some of you should leave here more sure of your salvation. Some of you should leave here less sure of your salvation. And some of you hopefully leave here desiring salvation. And that's what John was writing as this old man wrote this inspired text for us. This is what he wants. Some of you more sure, some of you less sure, but that's what he wants. The question is simply this, how do I know that I'm a Christian? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through. We've prayed a lot, so I don't want to stop and pray, but God be with us in this moment. Let's tackle this. Here's the language John uses for being a Christian, just so we're on the same page. Go to verse 3. He says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him. You could replace know him with Christian. Jump over to verse 5, right in the middle of verse 5. We'll call it 5b. There's a sentence there. It says, by this, so there's two tests built into this text. By this, we know that we are in him. So just so you know, because I didn't grow up in a church. Some of you don't know the faith thing and the Jesus thing. That's great. I love people like that because that was me. Uh, what, is it, what is he talking about? Those that know him, those that are in him. So the ways you describe Christian in the book of Acts, the early church, just a quick overview, is they weren't called Christians. They were called followers of the way. And then people started to get wind of these people that are following this Jesus rabbi character. And at some point in the book of Acts, it switches and it no longer becomes about their active following of Jesus. And they're just labeled as Christians. And that label sort of sticks for a long time. And then Christianity takes off Constantine and it becomes sort of the religion of the land. So if you're in England or Spain or France, you're just Christian because that's what French people are. You're either Christian by being Catholic or whatever, but you're everyone's Christian. And that's sort of the, the, the dominating theme for a long, long time until these random weird people show up on the scene. We call them Baptists. Any Baptists in here? We got... Amen. Amen. And the Baptists looked at all these religions because the religion in Europe was all tied together with the state. And the Baptists said, just because you're an Anglican, a Church of England, or you're a Catholic, or you're this, does not make you in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to have a real relationship. You have to be born again. And the Baptists start baptizing adults only that have been born again. And then this born again term sort of takes, and now we have born again Christians. Not to say those other people aren't Christian. I'm just saying the way it's labeled. But nowadays, what do you have to use to describe a Christian? One of the most like umbrella terms over all of us, I hate it, evangelical. She's like, what does that mean? It's so politically charged that it means absolutely nothing anymore in terms of actual real faith. So what do we call ourselves, Christians? Just so you know, I still like the term Christian because I think it communicates most directly in this land. A lot of the people I listen to and follow and read like to say, followers of Jesus. Either way, we know what we're talking about. Those who have a relationship with Jesus, the way John would use the language is those that know him or those that are in him. We tracking so far? Now, here's why John is writing. Just to give you the background, I'm going to jump into some questions that maybe you've been asked or you've asked other people. Uh, why is he writing this? Because the church has been infiltrated with false teaching. Gnostic teaching. Here's what Gnostic teaching taught. Jesus is here, Christianity is here, but there's actually a better way. It's sort of a secret way that only a few of us get to. 
So then people are in these churches like, what tier am I on? Have I got to the secret level? It's sort of like the secret menu at In-N-Out or the secret codes in these video games my sons are playing. Or like, have I got the ultimate, like, behind the scenes? And everyone's like, I don't know. And it all had to do with this, like, mental, spiritual, weird, mystical ascent into some knowledge of this Jesus character. Am I there yet? So John, as an old man, says, I'm writing them. I'm sick of this. You can know Jesus. Jesus is not a secret. I've touched him. I've hugged him. I've heard him. He's not a secret. And following Jesus is not a secret. It's here for all of us. It's public knowledge. And that's what he's going into now is, let me help you answer this question. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Three unhelpful responses for this question. Here's the first one. Have you accepted Jesus into your heart? So some of you became a Christian because at some point, somebody that loves you asked you to ask Jesus into your heart. That's how I became a Christian. This is not a bad way to become a Christian. The question is, how do I know that I'm a Christian? That question alone is a bad way to assess your current faith. Otherwise, it's asked, did you pray to receive Jesus? Did you pray the sinner's prayer? Basically, it all boils down to this. At some point in the past, there was a decision made where you said, I'm going to follow Jesus, ask Jesus to be my Savior, some version of that. Did you ask Jesus into your heart? John is not going to use that as a helpful way to respond to that question because I don't think it is. Nowhere in the Bible does God tell any believer to look back on their life. Remember when you did that thing at that youth camp? Jimmy Curley was there, and you prayed to ask Jesus into your heart. Remember? Again, that's not bad, but the Bible doesn't use that as data for current assurance. The Bible all the time says, look back, look back, look back, and he always says, look back at how faithful I am, says the Lord your God. But did you ask Jesus into your heart? I'll write this. It's a good thing, but it's also not necessary. Like my kids... I don't think they're going to have like this moment where it's like, that's when it happened. I have it, July 4, 2000. That's when I asked Jesus into my heart at a camp, thinking I was everything the world needed in baseball, and I wasn't. And it all crumbled down, and I met Jesus at FCA baseball camp. My kids, if you ask them, they'd be like, I don't know. Some of you are like, just at some point. So it's good for some of us, but it's not necessary for all of us. Here's the, the issue, though. It's just not a biblical way to go about this. The equivalent is this in marriage. My wife and I are coming up on 16 years. Aubrey says, do you love me? And the answer is yes. And she asks, how do I know that you love me? And here's my response. I go into our kitchen, into our filing cabinet. 2006. Seven marriage certificate I signed here. Officiant Brian Beltramo signed off on this. First witness, Ashlyn Gifford, your sister signed off on this. And my dad, best man, Michael Jean Watt, signed off on this. Official, that's how you know that I love you, Aubrey. That's the equivalent of saying, back when I did this thing for Jesus. It's just not in the Bible as a way to test your faith now. So, again, do not leave here. Especially, some of you asked Jesus into your heart like five, six years old. 
And it's like the sweetest, precious memory. It's still sweet and precious and real and authentic. But as we open up the scriptures, especially New Testament, the Bible would not let, have you land there as proof of what you claim about Jesus now. There's more to it than that. Here's the second unhelpful way to uh, tackle this question. Is do you have an impressive religious resume? Have you planted a church? Have you given large sums of money? Let's just scale it down. Have you attended church fairly regularly? Like average church attendance across churches, even amongst people that claim to be Christians, is one at most to two times a month. So if you're coming to this place more than twice a month, you are killing it in the Christian world in terms of resume. Giving. Some of you give here and other charitable organizations. But that's not a proof. That's part of why I don't look at the giving of this church and just have a general policy because the human heart is wicked and we assign like, well, that must mean this. It's like, that doesn't mean that. That may mean that, but that also may mean something far worse or cynical. So I just I don't want to be a part of that. It's not about giving. Even Jesus, like one of his most terrifying stories in my mind is in Matthew 7, it's on the screen, has this very same conversation. Some people say to him at the end, Lord, Lord, you're the king. I'm ready for heaven. This is the interaction. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Same word for those. By this, we know that we know him. Jesus says, I never knew you. And he says that not to like dirtbag people, people that cast out demons. Me and the Chandler and Xavier just met with Sandy Mason. I said, have you ever cast out a demon? He's like, yep. I'm like, wow, I have not. Mighty works. Like think of the greatest Christian accomplishment you've had for your church or ministry or family or neighbor or team or work. Like there's Jesus saying there are people that are assuming they're knowing me because their resume is pretty impressive when you look it out amongst other Christians. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. The Apostle John, directly kind. Some of you should be more sure, some of you should be less sure, based off the assessment John gives here. But religious resume is never something that Jesus says, that's it. We'll get to what he actually wants, but that's not one of them. And here's the third way people unhelpfully deal with this. Why do you even think about that question? Like some people just overassume a lot. And then you bring it into the faith world and they overassume a lot. Here's some examples. Our family is Christian. We've always been Christian. We're Christians. That's what we are. Like I taught, I used to be a youth pastor, and I dealt with parents all the time. And there's some parents who, like, if they see their kid get baptized in the later years, the late teen years or adult years, and say, this is when I really started following Jesus, it sort of hits hard. Like, 
what was I doing those last 20 years as your mother, young man? You've always been a Christian. I've had this conversation multiple times on multiple levels. Uh, there's not Christian families where somehow everyone is just automatically Christian from day one till the end. There's families striving to be faithful in following Jesus together. But we don't get to like slap a Christian label on it like we do with music and say, this house is therefore Christian. Same way culturally in America. What are your options in religion? I looked at the census data. What can you, next census, go around? Here's your options for religion. Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, Sikh, and Jain. So you're sitting down. Chris Smith, Caucasian, shoe game, very strong, <laughs> religion, Christian. All my Catholic friends, all my Mormon friends, all my non-Muslim friends, if these are my selections, I'm Christian. And you just don't put thought to what that word Christian actually means and what it means for you personally in your relationship with he who is the Christ. Think about this question more. You cannot say I'm a Christian because I've always been that way. You cannot say I'm a Christian because my family's always been that way, although that'll be part of my boy's answer, hopefully. I became a Christian because I just, it was in our house all the time. I don't know when. I'm a Christian because I'm American. That's what Americans are, Christian. Those are not biblical answers. Just so you know, our very own Chandler Cruz was hit hard by this message years ago. If you can picture, at some point, Chandler Cruz was not that great of a guy. He was in high school, and he was living on the fence. He's going to a Christian school and doing a lot of dumb, bad, sinful, wicked things. And his youth pastor gets up and preaches a message on 1 John chapter 2. By this you know that you know him. Chandler knows how he's living, knows what he's expressing, knows what his family says, knows what all the people around him who believe in Jesus say. He goes home and he has a nightmare about him not being on the right side with Jesus. He's like, I'll never forget it. God used it. John's direct kindness telling a little teenage Chandler Cruz, you should not be as sure as you think you are because you haven't even wrestled with this question. You need to think about it, no matter how much Christian stuff is around you. So, those are the not helpful ways. The Apostle John gives us two helpful ways to ask this question. They're very simple, and they're very profound. The first one is simply this. If you're a note keeper, do you keep his commandments? Not a lot there. Do you keep his commandments? So let's just read together. I want to read verse 3 to the beginning of verse 5 again and see what John tells us as the faithful ways to respond to this question about knowing if I really know him. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. 
By this, that's the language, and then further on, by this. By this, here's the test. Not by your American status or your family status or your prayer, sinner's prayer status. By this, you will know that you know him if you keep his commandments. Two very important words there, keep and commandments. Keep means to observe, to conform one's life over and over to, to hold on to. Commandments, just so you know, the word for law is a different word. So this isn't necessarily law, like don't jump to the Ten Commandments. Commandments is instruction, direction, guidance. Aubrey, my wife, puts it this way, with God's commandments and laws on our life. It's boundaries for our flourishing that he's given us. Do you observe, do you conform your life to more and more God's instruction, direction, guidance? If so, there should be a level of assurance. That's what John's saying. Like our saying, all of life is all for Jesus. Everybody loves that saying. Like people have joined this church in spite of me as a preacher. Like I just love the church that says all of life is all for Jesus because it sounds great, especially when you think about work. Oh, all of life is all for vacation. Oh, me walking on the beach, worshiping. All of life is all for Jesus. We love it in so many ways. We do not like it in certain ways. All of life is all for Jesus. When you think about how much integrity you're showing in your remote work, all of life is all for Jesus. Because by stats, 75% of you are remote workers now, which means parents are out of the house. Elijah's in charge. And I come back and ask Elijah, how was it? He can tell me whatever he wants. Just like you can describe your remote work however you want. All of life is all for Jesus. On Father's Day, all of life is all for Jesus. And the work involved with consistent discipling and disciplining of your children. I remember meeting with this guy who was discipling, just for context, he was very out of shape, not a very disciplined guy. He was about to have his first kid, and he was all giddy about the fact that he got to start to apply some of the passages about discipline in the Bible. And I said, I won't say his name. I said, you do discipline. Discipline. You know what that word means, right? He's like, yeah, you know, Proverbs and train them. Are you a disciplined person? And it was like a light bulb, like, oh my gosh. No, I'm just looking forward to spanking a kid and telling him I love him. That's, <laughs> discipline is way more than that. All of life is all for Jesus, especially with that money discussion that you and your spouse keep putting off or blaming on circumstances outside of your control. All of life is all for Jesus in the budget meeting behind closed doors between you and your spouse? Are you keeping his commandments, his guidance, his direct direction on your life in all areas? Like, I don't want to taint the shirt, all of life is all for Jesus shirt. It's a great shirt. But it means more than just the good stuff. It means the hard stuff just as much. He is our king, and we want to follow him. Just a little Bible trivia, like commands throughout the Bible... I think a lot of us will get this. In Genesis 1 and 2, first, first part of the Bible, how many commands are there? Somebody shout it out. Chris Smith got it. Dad of the year, one. 
do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says nothing about touching, sniffing, being near, picking, any of that. Do not eat. One rule. Fast forward. He now has a people, the Jewish people. Exodus 20, it's the famous section. There's a famous little set of two tablets. How many commandments are in Exodus 20? Ten. If you take the whole Old Testament and gather up all the laws and testaments that the Jewish people were to abide by in some way, shape, or form, which a lot of them are obsolete because they deal with ceremonies that no longer exist and a farming culture that we don't live in. How many rules are there? 613. You're like, that's why I don't like the Old Testament God. He's like, got all these rules. I'm more of a Jesus guy. All right. (laughs) Jesus guys and girls. If you were to take the New Testament and kind of write down every time God guides, directs, instructs, points in a direction, pushes in a direction, pulls away from a direction, over a thousand, rough estimate, a thousand and fifty commands in the New Testament for guidance, direction. Are you keeping his commands? Is all of life really all for Jesus? That's the question John is having his people wrestle with. And the heart behind it is not judgment from an old guy trying to blast younger people. It's an older guy seeing false teaching really messing with people and wanting them to have a correct understanding that, yes, you should ask the question, how do I know that I know him? But there are better, more helpful, more faithful ways to go about it. Is are you keeping his commandments? So... This is how I'm wired. If I hear something like that broad, I sort of just like brush it off or just arrogance in me kicks in like, yeah, mostly. My wife and a couple of my kids more so like take the question and really want to like understand the essence and like, am I? So that's some of you and some of you like me and you need this still. So I broke it down. Here's a way to kind of think about this. Is there a growing desire, submission, and pattern in your life of keeping his commands? Desire, not just obligation. Like, are you finding more joy in the all of life is all for Jesus stuff that requires you to listen to him? Is that growing? If so, John would say, as a wise old man full of the spirit, beautiful. Is there a growing submission? So this is where the rule thing gets really interesting because we all follow rules that already make sense to us and line up with what we want. Do not murder, fine. Killing it. Do not have an affair with another man's wife. Mostly killing. And Jesus comes in and is like, don't even look that way twice. E. Too close to home, Jesus. Submission is when there's something that you don't naturally want to do and you still do it. Like as we talk to young couples getting married and the word submission obviously is in the scriptures and it's been distorted in a ton of ways, I get it. But very few people have like a good definition. I'll ask like, when's the last time you submitted? And I've told you this illustration, some version of it. And the soon-to-be wife or wife will say, when we went on vacation to Coronado Island for two weeks, well, what did you want to do? Well, I wanted to go to Coronado for two weeks. Like that's not submission, that's agreement. Submission is when he says, I don't think Coronado's calling our name this year. I want to go to Vancouver and do missions work in the inner city. And that's not your option, and you choose not your option. That's submission. 
So for you with Jesus, it would be when he tells you stuff you don't want to do, and you still do it. That's the mission. And then here's the, the key word, pattern, not perfection. Jesus was the perfect one. We're just trying to follow his perfection and grow in a pattern of obedience. But are you keeping his commands? Here's the next question that's helpful. I stole this from a guy, George McDonald. Here's another way to ask the same question. But he's writing to people that think they're Christian because they asked Jesus into their heart. They believe in him. Instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said, do it. Or once this day abstain because he said, do not do it. You see what he's saying there? That's how you test your faith. At any point today, did you do something because Jesus told you to do it, either through his word or by his spirit or by his believers around you? Or you said no to something because his word or his spirit or his people told you not to do it? Okay, then if it's not this day, then go back seven days. At any point in the last seven days, can you answer that question affirmative? That's what John's getting at. Are you keeping his commandments? That's it. And verse 4, he just kind of gives us consequence to this answer. Verse 4 says this, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You see what he's saying there? You're like, my lack of obedience to Jesus' instruction has way more to do with the lie inside of me that I'm building my life on than just external like decision-making, like I'm in the Costco line deciding between this and this. It's flowing out of a lie inside of me. John Mark Comer, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but he describes sin this way. Deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires, and then they're normalized in this sinful society. So he's saying when you're not keeping his commandments, what you're proving is that you're living life based off a lie. Like the sun is the gravitational center of our universe, a lie or a collection of lies is at the center of you, and you're orbiting around that in your decision-making. Like, think of betrayal in marriage is, like, the hardest thing to pass through people through, and just, we've got friends going through it. Like, I can't think of something more. But then I read this, I'm like, self-betrayal. Like, getting to the end of my life, potentially. You getting to the end of your life. And God sort of pulls back the curtain, and you see that you were betraying yourself, even, your whole life. That your life was built on a lie that you chose and self-propagated, and cultivated. What betrayal is worse than looking at the person in the mirror and saying, I'm lying to that one even. That's what John's saying. If you're not keeping his commandments and you're saying you're with him, you're a liar, and you're building your life on a lie. But verse 5 says this, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. He does not say the love of God is earned. The love of God is perfected. Another word is accomplished. Like, how do you fall more in love with Jesus? You get to meet him for the first time at the cross. How do you perfect that love, accomplish that love, grow in that love more? You keep his commandments. That's the first question. Do you keep his commandments? Second one is this. Do you love your fellow Christians? This one will be similar with a slight tweak. Let's just read verse 5b through verse 11. But whoever keeps... Uh, but, Middle of verse 5. By this second test, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What is John saying here? Verse 5b and 6 simply says this, By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here's the second test. The first one's keeping his commandments. Second one, you ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. Again, another umbrella statement. Be like Jesus. Can you narrow it down, Pastor? Just John, verse 7 and 8, then goes on this rant about old and new. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment. This is not a new thing, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I'm not writing a new commandment. I'm writing a new commandment. What is he saying? He's saying the whole Bible is about love. From the very first word, it's about love. God's purpose for the world is love. Redemption has a membership packet where we talk about a doctrine. Here's the verse line in it. Love is at the center of the universe and at the center of Redemption Church. And just so you know, that was a correction about seven years ago. We started with something else. I don't know what it was, cross or church or something important, but not like the actual end goal of all things, namely love. Love. Love is not new. It's been around this whole time. But John says it's also a new commandment. What's the new commandment? Now we don't just have a picture like a famous painting of Picasso, of Van Gogh, something, and they, they pencil sketched it first without any colors. The Old Testament and all that God has been saying is like a pencil sketch. Like you see the shape, but it's missing something. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he is exactly what the whole Old Testament is trying to say this whole time. That's what love looks like. That's what the goal is, to be like that, to be with that, to become that. That's the goal, to be like Jesus. Further on in our membership packet, here's how we describe love that we see only in Jesus. Jesus shows us how love is truth-telling, humble, sacrificial, considerate, hospitable, hostility-absorbing, non-reactive, lower place-taking, honest, initiative-taking, thoughtful, serving, forgiving, and ultimately substitutionary. Walk like he Walked, John says, as an older man to us. But then he narrows it even more, which is just interesting, to not just a general statement about who we walk towards, but let's just read verse... Where am I at here? Verse 9. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Who is John talking about? Your brothers and your sisters of the faith. Whenever he uses family language, it's the Christian. So here's what John is saying. Do you love like Jesus towards fellow Christians? Now, we're called to love our enemy even, so we're not off the hook. It's not like, okay, I could do that because my neighbor is annoying. It's like John just wants us, do you keep his commandments and do you love like Jesus those that are in the Jesus family with you? That's what he's asking. Not when did you accept Jesus in your heart? Are you growing and keeping his commandments and are you growing in this love? Just to use the same questions with this context, 
Is there a growing desire, submission, and pattern of loving Christians around you in your life? Is that a mark of your life? And some of you are like, I don't, I'm not around that many Christians. Well, that would be not a great way to answer that question. But is that marking your life? And then the other question with similar language. Instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself this. Whether you have this day loved another, and I'll call it an easy-to-avoid Christian, because he, Jesus said, do it, or once abstained from avoiding that easy-to-avoid Christian, because he said, do not do it. That's why my way of asking, are you loving other Christians like Jesus loved you? That's John's question for us. If not, he says the exact same thing, you are in darkness. Another way to say you're living life based off a lie. At some point, you've asked this, someone's going to ask you, how do I know that I'm a Christian? There are lots of ways to unhelpfully address that question. John, in his love and care and by inspiration of the Spirit, has given us helpful ways. Are you keeping his commandments? And are you loving fellow Christians? That's it. There's some more in other parts of the Bible, but those are the two he wants us to rest. Are you keeping his commandments? And are you loving other Christians? Now, some of you should leave here more sure, confident. Some of you should leave here sitting in the tension. Jesus was fine with tension. He'd have interaction after interaction where the tension was palpable. And he'd say, all right, I'm out. And I just want to say, if that's you in the tension, Jesus says, sit in that. Here's what Jesus was not okay with. A lack of clarity around his role in this. We're not doing this to earn that which he has already earned on our behalf. If you ask Jesus, are you keeping the commandments and are you loving others well? Jesus is the only one who can emphatically, authentically, passionately say yes. He kept every commandment. He loved every person no matter how avoidable they were. And he went to a cross to take on the sin that you and I have in our life based off our inability to do that stuff well. That's the gospel. He did the work. We are no longer earning it. We're now responding to that which he did for us. Amen? Let's pray together. God, help us to sit with these questions well as adults growing in at least a perception of knowledge where we don't need to ask questions as much as we used to. I pray we'd ask important questions like this about our faith, about the validity of our faith, about our walk with you. God, let us never be a church that heaps up guilt unnecessarily or piles on. Let us also not be a church that blindly uh, and in the name of kindness does not address that which you address clearly. So God, by your spirit, do the work necessary in the hearts, whether that's leaving here more sure as they look back on their life and see a growing desire and submission and pattern of these things, or they look back and they struggle to see this. God, you, by your spirit, know what each of us needs. Bring it to us in this moment. Amen.